listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Good morning, everyone. So, it's always a scary thing when people introduce you. (laughs) And you're like, if I've done it multiple times, then there's nothing to be worried about. But I have never stood and delivered a sermon. It's, this is a first. So we'll find out. I might have a servant's heart, but we'll see if I have a pastor's tongue. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out together. <laughs> so before we begin, let's open up in a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your blessings, Lord. We thank you for this Christmas season, Father, where we can celebrate the birth of our Savior, recognizing that he came in the flesh for us and that he came to deliver us from our sins, to rescue us from the penalties of of sin and death. And because of what he's done, he demonstrated love to us. And so we just thank you, Father, as we're able to celebrate Christmas time with our family and friends, Lord. May you make it a blessing to us, Father. As we uh, have our message this morning, Father, may you just allow us to apply the things that we learn today and the things that we hear, Father, into our celebration of you this season. Father, thank you so much for this time together. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He was useless, utterly useless, he told his sister in a letter, and he quoted, I am nothing but a burden to my family. Really, it would be better if I had never been born. He had been taken out of a school as a youngster because he was what some would consider, and in fact, if you've ever been to Cracker Barrel and you've seen those triangle-shaped games with the pegs in it on the table, you know, some label that they have on there says, just plain dumb. He had to be tutored by, um, in his home by his mother, which was a thing of shame back then. And by the age of 22, he had hit rock bottom. His parents were poor and could no longer support him. He needed a job, but nobody would hire him. And so in desperation, he appealed to an old school friend, a fellow whose class notes he used to copy. That friend's father had government connections, and a few days later, he was being interviewed for a position at the Federal Patent Office. In his interview, he told the truth, that he'd been thrown out of high school at the age of 15, and with no high school diploma, college had been out of the question. So he applied to a technical school, but he flunked the entrance exam. So he went back to high school, but to a different high school, because his old high school refused to readmit him. This time, he did manage to graduate, and he was even accepted at technical school. Yet, he was at the patent office asking for a job that he knew in his heart he was not qualified for. Remarkably, that interview continued for almost two hours, and by the time it was over, the director decided to give him a break and he was hire him as a probationary, in a probationary job as a technical expert third class. Inspired by his first success, he successfully learned to live up to his God-given potential. And from that beginning, 
began the undeniable genius the world knows as Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, of course, we know is the physicist and scientist. And as Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. It's kind of interesting because when you hear that story, without knowing who Albert Einstein is and knowing his past and knowing all the things that he did, it's a story of triumph. It's a story of victory. And yet, the complete story is always much more powerful than just one part of the story. And so even though he came from humble beginnings, and it's kind of interesting because Albert Einstein described his life in saying, um, God gave me the stubbornness of a mule and nothing else. And I think in a lot of cases, if you're going to be successful, that's what it takes. You've got to have stubbornness. And so when we hear a story, oftentimes we hear about someone's life. You can't just focus in on just one part of their life because our life is built up of many different stories, many different times, many different circumstances that impacts who we are and changes who we become. And so if you want to understand who someone is, you really have to look at the entire story. And that's what, exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a story of a person and I hate to use the word story sometimes because sometimes when you use the word story, it sounds like it's made up, okay? But when we say a story, when we talk about a biography of a person, these are real events. These are real things that we see happen to that person, real events in their lives. And we're just taking a glimpse into their life. So we're not looking at all the details of their life. We're looking at small pieces of their lives and trying to get an understanding of that small pieces and put it in some type of rational way of understanding that person. But this is a person who you're very familiar with and a person who is very much appropriate for the Christmas season. Today we're going to look at a person whose story really is wrapped around our whole celebration of Christmas. Um, and for many people, when we talk about the story of the mother of Jesus, they would think that that story begins and ends with the nativity scene. But there's a lot more to Mary's life, and there's a lot more that we can learn and, and glimpse from Mary's life as she lived it, not just during the time of Christmas, the nativity time, but as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is going to tell us a lot more. So let's go ahead and start taking a look at the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if you would, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 5. When we look at the Christmas story, oftentimes we'll start off and we'll look at Matthew or we'll look at Luke and we'll kind of be able to start the story and see exactly where it's going. And in a lot of cases, we're very familiar with that story. We're going to look at the story and, and hopefully we'll glean some things that we haven't noticed before. So first thing we want to do in, in starting off in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Joseph of the division of Abigail. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Mary, right? That's not what it says, right? This is the story, the beginning of the Christmas story. And what's kind of interesting is it doesn't even start with Mary. Look where Luke begins telling the story. He begins telling the story with the forerunner of Jesus, the parents of the forerunner of Jesus, which in this case was Zacharias and Elizabeth. So it doesn't even start off with Mary, but yet so often we think of the Christmas story and it starts off with Mary. But in Luke's account, he's starting off with the forerunner of Jesus because he's so important in terms of leading to the Messiah and the understanding of who that Messiah was going to be. 
and setting the way or paving the way for us to understand who the Messiah was and what that role was going to be. So it's very important that we recognize that the story of Jesus, when we look at the story of Jesus, yes, it goes through Mary, but in this case, it also starts with Elizabeth, and it starts off with the forerunner of Jesus. So it's kind of interesting. When we look at Mary, Mary is not even mentioned in Luke's account until verse 26. And if you go and look at Matthew, Matthew doesn't even mention Mary until verse 18. But that's not to say that she's not significant. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not downplaying her role or her importance. She definitely has an important role. But we're going to look and see several different um, gleamings into her life and, and look at some of the significance. So let's take a look at verse 26, once again, in Luke chapter 1. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. So we're very familiar with this point of the story, but what's kind of interesting is the angel says to her, greetings, favored one. So what exactly is he saying to her? He's basically recognizing that she is the recipient of God's grace. She's the recipient of God's favor in her life, and that she's not really the dispenser of grace. She's not the dispenser of goodness. She's actually receiving God's goodness because she is being seen or recognized in this point by the angel as being one that's receiving God's grace. So as he says here, greetings favored one. She is the favored one because she is the one that God is going to use in order to bless not just her, not just her family, not just the people of that time, but the people of all time. He was going to bless the world through her son. And so we see this taking place. And as we continue in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, first thing I always think about, whenever I see an angel in Scripture, what's the first thing they always tell people? Do not be afraid. What does that mean? If I saw an angel, I'm probably going to be afraid. If you're like me, if they have to constantly say, don't be afraid, there's got to be some reason why they're saying this to you. So, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us what they look like. And, and actually, there is one statement where it's made later on, and we'll see the statement where it talked about the angel being in dazzling clothes and so forth. But technically speaking, we have no idea. But I would think if you're telling someone not to be afraid, that's the first thing they're, gonna, they're going to do. And so there's got to be a reason. So if you ever see an angel... There's probably a reason why you're going to be afraid, or the first emotion that you're going to have is fear. So I always think that's interesting. Why did he say to her, don't be afraid? Well, I guess we'll have to wait until we actually see an angel in order to experience that. But he said to her, don't be afraid. And in speaking with her in verse 30, he says to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, what's kind of interesting, he says, you have found favor with God. What does it mean by the idea that, he's, that she has found favor with God? 
Well, she was found favor with God. Basically, when you look into what that actually means and has anybody else ever found favor with God, the answer is yes, other people have. And what does it exactly mean? It means that she would be receiving the blessings of the Lord and it was going to be bestowed on those who walk faithfully. So was Mary faithful in serving the Lord even before she became the mother of Jesus? Yes. In fact, we even know that her cousin Elizabeth was also a righteous person, and she too found the favor of the Lord. That's why she was the one that was going to bring in John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. So there are other people in the Bible that actually were listed as um, having favor with God. So if you, uh, we're not going to go to these passages, but Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, is listed as having favor with God. Joseph in Genesis 39, 3 through 4, is listed as having favor with God. Moses in Exodus 33, 17, is listed as having favor with God. And then later on, we'll see in the life of Jesus, he was listed as having favor with God. So having favor with God is one who walks faithfully. So what does that tell you? That should tell you that if you are faithfully walking with the Lord, you too will have favor with God. You too will receive his blessings. You too will be blessed for following the, the, the almighty on high God. And this is something that we all can experience by faithfully following after Jesus, faithfully following God. So God is ultimately going to choose who he bestows his favor on, and he's going to bestow his favor on those who are in, in fellowship with him and who follow after him faithfully in his ways. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So she would become the mother of the Messiah. Now, this is an important statement. And I don't know if you have ever thought about it this way. But she was going to conceive in her womb and bear a son. Prior to this, you know, there's a gap obviously between the Old Testament and the New Testament of 400 years. But if you go back into the Old Testament, let's just think about what that really would mean. You had the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant actually contained the presence of God. And the Ark of the Covenant was something that was holy. It was not to be touched by man, right? And what happens, even if you thought you were doing the right things, you had the right motivation, you think you were saving the Ark of the Covenant from hitting the ground, and you run over to it and you touch it, what happened to you? You died. Okay? And then if you look later on, when the temple is built, when the temple is built, the Ark of the Covenant was placed into the Holy of Holies. And being placed in the Holy of Holies, it was separated by a curtain. And the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And it was so important, so utterly important, that the high priest walked into the Holy of Holies with his sins covered, with the right motivation, with the right respect going into the presence of the Lord, that they tied a rope around him so that if he walked into the Holy of Holies and he was not correctly where he should be spiritually in coming into the presence of the Lord, he would fall dead and they can pull him out. That is what Mary is being told is going to be in her womb. God. And I think a lot of times in our Christian faith today, 
we lose a lot of the reference for who God actually is. But, you know, we can't just go before God. You know, when you get to heaven, I don't think you're going to be able to just go before God in any way. Hey, God, what's up? How are you? There's a reverence. There's a proper sense of respect that goes along with God. And so the Ark of the Covenant, when we look at that, and when we look at the temple and the holy of holy place, it was so important that you do it in the right way. And yet this was going to be in the form of a child and placed inside of Mary. That's how important that statement is in verse 31, that she would conceive in her womb and bear a son. So that God that we're talking about here, where if you touched just, and it's not even touching God, touching the ark, a symbol of God, could kill you. She was going to be carrying that God in her womb. That's how significant it is when we talk about Mary. So is she significant? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mary is 100% significant. However, that does not diminish from the fact that Mary, in carrying the Son of God, needed the Son of God. She was not perfect. She was not sinless. And so a lot of times uh, people bestow on Mary some attributes which are not true. She was a sinner just like we are a sinner. And she needed that Savior. She needed that child to grow up and to become the saver and the Messiah that he was going to be in order to save her from her sins, just like we do today. So as we look in verse 32, verse 32, the angel continued on and he said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, in looking at verse 32, I thought it was quite interesting when it says here, you know, he says all of these things. He says that um, he'll be called the son of the Most High, that he'll um, reign over um, the house of Jacob, that he would take over the throne of his father David. But the first thing that he says is kind of interesting. He will be great. What does that mean? He will be great. Why would the angel say that? Of all the things that he said, he said he will be great. In my humanness, I just had to figure it out, and I wanted to look, and I said, okay, let me see. What does the uh, all-knowing Google have to say about the word great? (laughs) So what does it mean to be great? You know, there's got to be some significance. Why did he just say he will be good? He will be excellent. He'll be perfect. No, he will be great. So in looking this up, I found an answer. And the first answer I came to is the one that I kind of stuck with. And I was like, okay, God, this does make sense. I get it. <laughs> okay, so as I looked this up, um, and I typed in my, my uh, search bar, which is better, good or great? And the very first response I got back was, it said, just apply the following rule of thumb. If something is good, you must convince and sell it to others. If something is great, people will automatically flock to it. And I was like, okay, I know it doesn't really, okay, this is really applying to business is really what, when I looked it up, Dr. G, let me give him credit, Dr. G wrote this, and uh, he was writing an article on something called the simplest, uh, the simple differences between good and great. 
a good verse is great. So even though this was not directly applied to Scripture, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Flock to it. And, and that's exactly true, isn't it, when we talk about Jesus? People flock to Jesus. Now, when we talk about people flocking to Jesus, it's the idea of understanding who Jesus is. You know, because when we think about the fact that Jesus or God is like a magnet, okay? So when we talk about a magnet, let's do a little bit of science for our students in here. When we talk about a magnet, a magnet has two ends to it, right? It has a north end and it has a south end, right? So God is like a magnet. And his north end, let's say, is pointing always, calling us to Jesus. Now, what happens with my being if my north end says, I don't need Jesus? There is no Jesus. There is no reason for me to come to a God. You know, I'll take care of myself. You know, I, I'm better than that person, so I should definitely go to heaven. What happens as two ends of the same pole are facing each other? What happens when north and north meet? They repel, right? Okay. However, what happens when I realize that I need a savior, that I'm a sinner, that I cannot save myself, I cannot redeem myself, that I need a holy God to redeem me, and I've changed my ways. Suddenly, my south end is showing. And when my south end, what's going to happen in terms of God? I'm going to be attracted. So I've got to be facing the same way. So I've got to recognize my need for Jesus, my need for God, in order for this to work. And that's exactly it. God or Jesus attracts those who are humble, those who recognize that it's not about them. I'm not almighty. I can't save myself. In fact, I need saving. I need a savior. I need a Messiah. And that is when he attracts people to himself. So all of these things are very important. And when we look at this, um, Jesus is the reason why we have an understanding or the ability, really, to come before a holy God. That same holy God who could not be touched unworthily. The same holy God that was going to be conceived in Mary is the same God that we need. It's the same God that attracts us, even today. Continuing on once again in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come unto you, unto you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. What's interesting in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Was Mary doubting what was going to happen? No. She wasn't doubting. She was just asking, okay, how is this going to happen? Now, we saw what happened, and if you remember what happened, what happened to Zacharias as he heard this message that his wife was going to conceive in her old age, and he was going to have a son, and he was going to be the forerunner of the, the Messiah. 
What happened to him? He doubted, right? He didn't think it was going to happen. So what ultimately happened? What did the angel do? <laughs> Muted him, right? But that's not what happened to Mary. Mary did not doubt the message from the angel. She believed in that message of the angel. All she asked, and what's interesting is, God is an almighty and all-powerful God. But it's kind of interesting. He allows us to have questions. When he sends you on a mission or he sends you to do something or he has something for you to do, there is nothing wrong with asking him, how is this going to happen? There is a problem if you want to question what he's telling you to do. This is not what Mary did. But there is nothing wrong with asking our Heavenly Father questions about how he's going to do this or that. And that's exactly what Mary does. So she's saying, how is this going to happen? I'm not sure I understand. And it's interesting. Verse 35 is a powerful verse. You know, in verse 35... The angel could have blinded her with science and just given it, well, Mary, you see, Jesus is going to come to you, and this is going to, and the nucleotides and the DNA from, he didn't do that, right? He broke it down into a simple form that she could understand and that we should be able to understand. So let's look and see what the angel told her. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Anybody who you've ever met, and maybe yourself, who doubts the Trinity just needs to look at this passage. Look at this passage. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, one part of the Trinity, and the power of the Most High. Who's the power of the Most High? The Father. Okay. And it will overshadow you. And for that reason, the child, who's that child? I think that's three. The Holy Spirit, the Father, and the child are all going to be involved in the creation of the Son in human form. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So if there's ever a doubt about the Holy Spirit or the existence of the Holy Spirit, or if there's ever a doubt about the Trinity, take them back to the simple part. And, and that's something we can share with people who don't believe in the, in the, um, the Trinity or those who don't believe um, you know, that Jesus came in the form of a child. This explains it all to us. And so what we see here is that Mary's been explained or has been given the explanation of how it's going to take place. And we've been given that same answer. The Holy Spirit, the Most High, and the Holy Child would be conceived inside of Mary. So this child was going to be a special child, and Mary was going to be the bearer of this special child. I'm going to change verses right now. We're going to take a look at Luke chapter 2 real quickly. And this is where I'm going to speed up my conversation. So I'm going to ask you to put on your quick listening ears because I'm going to speed up my conversation. Um, we're going to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 6. So once again, we're still in the life of Mary. We're still talking about the Christmas story. And starting in verse 6, it says, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So this is, once again, it's where Mary and Joseph um, go back um, into 
the city of Naz uh, leave Nazareth and they actually go to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, in order to register um, because of the requirement that was given by Caesar Augustus. So in verse 6, once again, it says, um, while they were there, the days were complete um, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, what's kind of interesting, in verse 7, it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Notice there that it tells us right there that it's her firstborn son. So that means it's not her only son. And it also says that it also gives us the idea that it's not her only child. So some people believe that Mary was a virgin her entire life. That's not true. Right here, we have confirmation that that's the case. We also have confirmation if we look in uh, Matthew. Matthew, and we're not going to turn there, but Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 54 through 56. Jesus was talking to, actually, Jesus was back in his hometown once again. He was talking to the people, and the people were listening, and they were like, hey, wait a second, wait a second. Isn't this the same Jesus who's the son of, of Joseph the carpenter? And isn't his mother called Mary? And don't we know his four brothers, his four brothers, James, um, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And what about his sisters? Now, that also tells us, by the way, his sisters. We don't know how many, but we know that he had at least how many? He had at least two sisters, but it doesn't actually tell us the full number. But we can assume there's at least two, since it says sisters. So Mary had other children. Jesus had siblings. Jesus was the firstborn. He was born of a virgin, but he had other siblings. And so as we see that, um, as, that as that told, Mary did have other children. As we go and continue on in Luke chapter 2, looking at verse 16, once again going a little bit further into the story. So they came in a hurry and found their way, their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby, and he lay in the manger. Now, who is they that it's referring to? This is referring to, in verse 11, the shepherds, okay? And the shepherds heard from the angel that said, for today, in verse 11, For today in the city of David um, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then it talks about this will be a sign. Um, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So at this point in time, we see that uh, the message of Jesus was actually given, and Mary was there, obviously. <laughs> and so when we look at this message, who was this message given to? It was given to the shepherds. And when we talk about what were they told, if you look at verse 17, it says, um, when they had seen this, um, they made, uh, made known the statement which had been told them about this child. So what was the statement that was told to them about this child? Going back to verse 11, the statement that was told was them was, For today in the city of David there has been born for you, and this is for every one of us, there has been for us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So Jesus Christ was born not just for Mary's sake, not just for the people of the time's sake, but for all of us. It was born for all of our sakes. And that's the powerful message about um, Christmas. 
The message starts with the idea that God comes in the flesh. But you realize Christmas would have no meaning if Jesus just was born on earth. You know, okay, it's fantastic that God came in the flesh. He was born of a virgin, that he was here on the earth. Imagine if Jesus just came on this earth, he lived a life, and he died, and that was the end of the story. Great story, right? Okay, but what was the point? And so whenever we talk about Christmas time, we've always got to recognize that Christmas is just the beginning of the story. It's a great story. It's a powerful story. But without the tail end of that story, it has no significance. Without the death on the cross, it has no significance. And I'm sorry, the death on the cross has no significance without the resurrection. Absolutely. So those three things all combined is what makes it a great story. But if you just want to stick with the Christmas story, you are missing the story. And that's exactly what the world is doing. The world will say, mm, okay, you know, I'm not really into this Jesus thing, but okay, all except, hey, Jesus, a little baby came down, you know, God came down in the form of a baby, yay! But that's as far as I'm going with that story. I'm not going to talk about the miracles or the teachings or anything that he did, that's not for me. I'm not going to talk about his suffering and his death on the cross for my sake to forgive me of my sins. That's not for me. But that's what the world would tell you. It's okay to celebrate this Jesus, this little baby. Oh, he's so precious and cute. But that's not the story. The story goes a lot further. And denying the entire story makes it insignificant if you just want to focus on the, on the Christmas aspect of the nativity. The power comes from understanding all three aspects. His birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection. That is the power of the story. That is the power that makes Christmas significant. Without that, Christmas is not significant. It's great that God would come to earth in the form of a baby, but if he came and didn't do anything else, okay. But we want to recognize the entire story. So never let anyone just stop with the Christmas story and say, oh, that's a great little story. There's a lot more to it. And even though for most people Christmas is the most important time of the year, truly Easter is even bigger. Because that's where it was accomplished. That's where the task was done. That's where the resurrection takes place. And so as we look about um, what the world focuses on, they're okay with celebrating Christmas with us. That's great. But they don't really want to recognize Easter, do they? They want to talk about bunnies and all those kinds of things. Once again, denying the truth and the power of the story. But we can't allow the world to do that. So I want to take a look real quickly um, at the very end, there were other instances where Mary is mentioned. For example, we know that Mary was mentioned um, when Jesus was 12 years old, and the story where uh, they had gone to Jerusalem and they had um, celebrated a festival. And in celebrating the festival, they're headed home back on the caravan, and there's a whole bunch of people, including family and so forth, and they recognize a day later. Where's Jesus? <laughs> it's kind of interesting, right? I know in that situation where um, 
you know, you're, you're headed back home, and, and, you know, if I was with my wife, she would have been like, um, where's our son? Didn't you tell him that we were, we were leaving? And I'd be like, I thought you told him. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. That doesn't really take place. But what happens when Mary gets to Jesus? Mary gets to Jesus, and she says to Jesus in her kind way, she says to Jesus, son, don't you know your father and I were looking for you? And how does Jesus respond? He said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? And it's kind of interesting. That setting kind of sets the stage for what takes place later on. Because it says um, in Luke chapter 2, verse 45, um, it talks about the fact, 45 through 48, it talks about the fact that Jesus ultimately submitted to his mother and father. So after this took place, Jesus submitted to his mother and father. But the very next time we see Jesus and we see Mary together, it's, it's a little bit different. And I think it lays the groundwork for what we see taking place. The next time we see Jesus and Mary together is at the first miracle that he does, which is at the wedding. And at the wedding, he, um, excuse me, Mary was telling Jesus, you know, they've run out of wine. It's going to be an embarrassment, basically, for this family if they run out of wine and they have all these guests. And, you know, we need to have, they need to have good wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, no, he didn't say that way. He's Jesus. So he said, he said, woman, what have that to do with me or to us? And then he says, um, basically uh, telling her that his time had not come. Well, if you look at that statement where he says woman, first of all, in our modern context, if I said to my wife, woman, <laughs> you're going to carry me out of here in a box because that's how bad it's going to be. However, when he makes the statement woman, he's not really derog it's not a derogatory statement like we mean it today. If I said woman, that would be a derogatory statement. It's more like ma'am. It's more like addressing her formally. And so when he says to her woman, he's really like saying ma'am. What does that have to do with us? And then he talks about the fact that his time had not yet come. So he basically ex explaining to her that his role with Mary had changed at this point in time. Because prior to this, Jesus, or I should say right before this, Jesus had called his disciples and he was about to begin his earthly ministry. So his role with his mother was changing. He was no longer going to be the son of Mary he was going to be the Messiah. And so he's identifying that his role has changed. So when he's referring to her as woman, he's not, he's not being negative towards her or disrespecting his mother. He's really saying or identifying the separation between his now role as Messiah and his role as the son when he was the son of Mary, which is important too because when you get to the end of the story, and we're going to turn real quickly if you would with me. Turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was, excuse me, on the third day there was a wedding, and this is the wedding that took place in, in uh, Cana, and this is the actual wedding itself. So, once again, this is where Jesus is identifying the fact that he is, in verse 4, he's changed his role with his mother, and notice what happens in verse 5. Verse 5, does Mary, take dis does Mary see that as disrespectful? Not from what we see here, right? In verse 5, she says, it says, His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to do, do it. 
And so, in a sense, she was recognizing his role has been changed. So she, in a sense, recognizes that he is now the Messiah. He is in that role of being the Messiah. So whatever he tells you to do, just do it. In other words, I'm not going to tell you what, you know, what Jesus would have you to do. He's going to tell you because who's the authority? He is. The Messiah is the authority. So that relationship aspect has changed. As we um, look at that and then we take that to, to the cross, if you look in John chapter 19, starting in verse 25, John chapter 19, starting in verse 25, 25. John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. It says, therefore the soldiers did these things, and it's talking about when they cast lots for his clothes. Um, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, or, or, or Clophus, um, and Mary Magdalene. While Jesus then saw, uh, excuse me, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and who was that? John, okay. So when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, once again, now we understand that he's not being disrespectful. He's saying more basically ma'am in our vernacular today. Um, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciples, behold your mother. And once again, we see this as a situation where Jesus is passing off the responsibility of a son to take care of his mother onto the one that he loved, which was John. So once again, that whole aspect of the role changing and the dynamics of that is seen in Mary's life. And so that ultimately gives us understanding of even Mary and Jesus recognize the changing of the roles in many, in many circumstances. And then finally, we come to the end of the, the story. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which had been prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were, uh, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothes. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And the power of Jesus Christ being risen is the end of the tale. Not really, right? Yes, he is risen, but he has also told us that he's coming again. And he's coming again for who? Believers, those who are faithful, those who believe. He's coming again for us. That is the story that we know. That is the story that gives us hope. That is the story that provides us with the peace and the understanding of the cross of the birth. That is the story that gives us understanding. And then when we understand that he's not only coming back from us, but he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth, that is where our joy comes from. So when we talk about the joy of the Christmas time, when we talk about I love Christmas, it's because I know what took place that... that um, 
was so significant in terms of the birth of Jesus Christ that led him to the cross, that led him to the tomb, that led him out of the tomb, resurrected on my behalf, that holy of holy person, the one who could not even be touched, like we talked about with the ark. I, as a humble person, have the privilege of being near, of being around through all eternity based on what he did for me. That's the power of Christmas. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of his resurrection. And as Paul Harvey would say, that's the rest of the story. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your blessings, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity, Father, to know you in a way, Father, that could only be dreamed about by the people of the Old Testament, Father. Even the people of the New Testament didn't totally understand what a relationship with you could be, Father. But in many cases, we just take it for granted, Lord, that we have open access to you. And that is true, Lord. But there is still a reverence that goes along with you. We are so grateful, Father, and we look so forward to seeing you in your glory. But thank you so much, Lord, for what you've done for us. We wouldn't even be able to do this if it were not for what you did on Christmas by being born to a virgin, coming and dying for our sins, dying on the cross for us, being resurrected on the third day. And because of these things, it is the greatest story ever told. But the story does not begin and end with Christmas. It goes all the way until you're coming again. Father, thank you so much, Lord, that we can celebrate Christmas time, Lord. And those who don't know you, Lord, celebrate Christmas, but they celebrate an incomplete Christmas, Lord. May you allow us, Father, to use your word, to use your, your blessings, Father, that we have of knowing the truth and knowing the complete story, Lord, to share that with others during this Christmas time, Lord. May we not just allow the story, Lord, to stop at the manger. You're not in the manger anymore any more than you're still hanging on a cross. You are risen, you are the risen Savior, and we are so grateful for that, Lord. You are alive. And so may we never leave you in the manger or leave you on the cross, Father, but complete the story, complete what you have for us, Lord, by putting our faith in you and knowing that we are blessed because of it. Father, thank you for this Christmas time, Lord. May our hearts truly be filled with the glory of your presence, Lord. May the peace come to us, Lord, that you promise. And Father, may we be your shining lights to the world, Lord, during this Christmas time. We thank you so much for it, Lord.